Members of the TalkScript team were on site at JSConf US 2019, where we did a series of interviews with the conference speakers. We had a great time meeting these thought leaders and learning more about each of them and their talks. We've compiled the interviews into a six-part series to help share the essence of JSConf US 2019. This episode contains interviews with Tierney Siren and Peter Aiken around the theme of community. All right, we're back. I'm Nick Nisi. I'm Neil Roberts. And I'm Tierney Siren. Welcome. So we just got out of your talk at JSConf and the title, Building Open Source Communities, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Great title. Great talk. Mm, thank uh, you. Learned a lot in there. I love the way that you broke it down into, was it four lessons? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Four lessons that were really easy to, they're memorable and they're specific. So they're action that you could take on all of them. And then you, you did a nice recap of that. So I guess maybe... Can you just summarize the four lessons? Yeah, so the overall summary is one, don't build too much. Two, empower your contributors. Three, accept help as a leader. And four, approach communication effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the big takeaways I had, and kind of that summarizes a few different parts of your talk, is like how to open source communities start, like yep. kind of accidentally. And I think a lot of the stuff that you talked about builds from there. Yeah, I mean, like, a lot of open source communities start as someone doing something that they wanted to do, and then other people find it valuable, and then they have a community, and it's by accident. And so a lot of the things that are kind of, that I talked about, happen naturally, Mm -hmm. because it's, like, not really well formed. And so there's a lot of opinion and availability to kind of shape things naturally, which when people start out trying to build an open source community, it's a lot more challenging to actually achieve that kind of natural flow because you're like building structure where structure doesn't yet exist. Yeah. I thought that was a neat way. Like that, it fits in with the accidental communities, right? Like there's a, that temptation when you see this community starting to emerge to be like, Oh no, like I need to get ahead of this before yep. it all goes wild and gets out of control. Cause you know, you look at other communities and you can see some of that, but yeah. you know, carp before the horse, you can end up stifling growth when you didn't mean to. Yeah. And I mean, like there are definitely things where people do set out to make sure that this framework is kind of applied of, you know, I can have an open community, but they're not necessarily doing it accidentally. And so, you know, if you're someone who ends up doing that, who ends up going and building things that are intended to be open source, you can still apply these lessons. And like, this is what I do with all my projects in the cute note GitHub org. I try to apply these and make sure that there's like enough there that it's useful, but also room for people to grow and come and participate if they want to. Mm-hmm. You talked about like how even mimicking other communities yep. can be something for growth. Yep. I think that's the, that's probably the most tempting where you're saying, I'm going to like even get rid of my ego and I'm going to get rid of the way that I think it should be done. And they're like, well, my community seems like this other community. I'm just going to copy them. But like no two communities are alike. Yeah. I mean, and I definitely learned that the hard way with the first website I made, which was technoboard.net. It was a thing, but you know, I was looking at like the well-known forms that were based off of the same form system I was using. And this, the biggest one had like 3 million posts and had dozens and dozens of forums and like tons of active contributors and participants. It was like a black hat hacking forum basically. And I tried to mimic that a bit and like have a bunch of forums and have structure and that had grown naturally for them, but I saw this as a, their success. And so I tried to kind of mimic that and it, didn't work out for me. Mm. It created a lot of unnecessary kind of space that people saw as empty and didn't 
decide to engage. Yeah. So I guess as a thought experiment, in hindsight, is there a way that you could have done that now, now knowing what you know and applying these rules? Yeah, I would have created one forum. I created like in the forum system, you can create many, you know, different forums. I would have started with one. And then if I saw a bunch of different topics that were similar, but not like necessarily within the specific scope of that forum, Mm -hmm. created a new forum and then moved all those in, which issues is kind of like a single forum in GitHub. And there's not like multiple issues, but like imagine, you know, pushing all of your GitHub issues that are bugs into their own issues thing, like their bugs issue and you know all your enhancements to enhancements thing Mm -hmm. that's kind of like what it is yeah i've I've been part of a slack community where it was like two channels and it was like general and then it was like ideas for channels and like that was kind of cool where even if you saw you say like oh we're discussing this a lot and then you'd go into the like ideas for channels Mm -hmm. channel and they'd be like people are talking about this so much and then you would talk about like well what is what do we call it I remember one where we were like, well, we should have a miscellaneous channel. And then we talked more about it. And we're like, well, no, we should call it life. Because that's what people were like. That was the mis- miscellaneous thing people were talking yeah. about is like life, like big ideas about what's meaning and purpose and yeah. all that stuff. And I, I think that that's actually a really, really valuable thing to like be able to kind of have a group and agree on something. Mm-hmm. There's like certain scales in open source where there are so many different opinions that you can't agree on anything. Mm-hmm. And so you have to just pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. And that's something I've ended up doing in Node a lot is just doing something and then dealing with it. And it's effective at like larger scales like that. But, you know, in communities that are like close knit, taking that approach of building out something small and then like finding consensus and then doing it is a lot more effective. Yeah, like I'm one of the real life communities I'm in, like one of the things that we've been talking about is where there is disagreement, just taking the time to say like, here are the people that kind of feel strongly about it. It's, you know, roughly eight out of 10 people. Here's the arguments that they make and here's why people disagree. And like, we're going to continue moving forward. But like those worries and concerns people have had have been noted and like they probably were right, right? Yeah. So when that stuff arises... We now can go back to some of those concerns and say, like, someone's already articulated that this might happen, uh, this might be a problem. But just, like, having your voice out there, even if it doesn't fit with the whole community, is so valuable. Yeah. So, yeah, some of the other... You had a lot of really good quotes in your talk. Neil, oh, thank you. Yeah, Neil mentioned one, the having empty spaces to grow limits and discourages growth. Uh, another one is too much red tape limits growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, red tape is a thing. Sometimes red tape is really useful and necessary, and sometimes it is well-intended but also completely unnecessary and being able to figure out when it's necessary and when it's unnecessary is really important Mm -hmm. you know in node there's a lot of necessary red tape because we're shipping a runtime that like literally billions or probably trillions of dollars depend on Mm -hmm. that's important to not mess up in something like my own personal projects i don't really need to set up much red tape because they're mine and like also nobody's using them really so it's fine to just kind of let people contribute and like, and maybe have tests fail and I can just go fix those later. And Mm -hmm. like, if it breaks, it breaks. Oops. So like judging red tape and seeing where it's useful and when it's limiting you is a very important thing to kind of figure out in Mm -hmm. any project or any community. Even if it's like an internal project, having red tape that's unnecessary on a product you're working on Mm -hmm. is really unhealthy for your product and your team so in that sense a lot of these lessons can even be applied back to normal work yeah yeah i think the problem i see is people front-loading red tape yep like that that's where it's just kind of like 
you know, you're, you're, you're worried that certain things are going to happen. Yeah. Like, I like, we talk a lot about, like, TC39 proposals. Yeah. They have such a good example of, like, backloaded red tape, where, like, they have a stage one proposal, and you're kind of just, like, anyone can just come up with crazy ideas, right? Yep. And then you can talk about it and stuff like that, and then, like, as it goes on, like, you get, you need these very strict, you need a champion, you need yep. implementate, you need implementers, and, like, you need, like, one counts as a certain type of implementer, one counts as a different one. Like, I really like that rear-loaded red tape. Yeah. Yeah, and what I was trying to do in Node when I was getting involved with the community committee was trying to front-load all the red tape and, like, mirror all the red tape that existed in the technical steering committee, and it was completely unnecessary and would have absolutely stifled our growth. (laughs) And I'm able to recognize that now because people call me out on it, and they were saying, hey, this probably isn't that needed, and it will kind of create more of a burden for people to actually come and participate than if you just don't have it. Mm-hmm. And it didn't even occur to me that we could just not have it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it is kind of... Some of the worries that you have are completely valid and also don't have anything to do with anything. Yep. <laughs> you can be completely right in a way that doesn't matter, which is really tough. Yeah. The big thing I think that really interested interested me in terms of like, what happens when the rubber hits the road? How do you actually implement this stuff? Is the idea of leading a community versus owning a community? Yep. Yeah, I I've never seen a community succeed that has an owner. Even in the case of like a BDFL, the community is still participating. And that's a benevolent dictator for life. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. It's something that Node had for a while. Python had it for years and years. There's a bunch of other projects that have had BDFLs. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, even a BDFL in some sense isn't owning a community, but it's very close. Mm. And so that's where the benevolent part comes from. Mm. In the sense of, I created this project, it's mine. That can be really toxic because your use case often isn't the only use case. And allowing other people's use cases to kind of creep in and allowing your code and work to serve them is a really good way to build a community. And if you're telling them, no, this isn't right, you're not going to succeed in building a community. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, it's having empathy for the other users and the other use cases that aren't directly your own and being cognizant of when when decisions need to be made to affect the code that benefit everyone, not just yourself or not just change things for the sake of change. It's changing for, for everyone. Yeah, 100%. And I, I think that my use case for a certain tool will also be improved when other people add their use cases and like the tool works for both, it's going to be better for both. Right. It's going to become more generic, yes, which can be good and bad, but it's also going to be more useful and, and more adaptable to any use case. And my use case is probably going to get better from that. You said like perfection, vision, and insight are like these three big things that kind of get people lodged in people's minds is yeah. like, I'm the one that has this. Yeah. And like, that one's so tough because, like, I, to, a, to a large extent, like, most of those people are right. But, like, it's almost in terms of how how that gets out of their own minds and into the community is where the problem is. Right. And you also can't know if someone else has, like, the vision or the insight mm-hmm. until they're there. Like, if you're just the only person working on something, you can't know that other people can participate or what their ideas will be if mm-hmm. you're alone. Yeah. I like uh, I always joke the idea of solipsism which is like the philosophical idea that your mind is the only knowable thing mm-hmm. in the world and that no one else, everyone else could be a robot or whatever. But I was like that thought where it's like the thing that stumbles you is that you know your own mind and you can only see the actions of someone else's mind. And, and it's really, it's really tough to kind of bridge that. Yep. Cause your vision looks so good. Your idea of perfection looks so good, but there's someone else that might have, 
all of that and more in their minds. Yeah. And I, I think that largely comes down to empathy, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have to have empathy. And I think this is true of both open source and normal, like kind of engineering. You have to have empathy for your users and for your uh, coworkers and teammates. Mm-hmm. And part of that is trusting them and giving them access and ability to participate in open source that goes for users and for developers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, users is a very broad term, but building out that definition and understanding who is a user and who is a contributor or an engineer actually helps you have empathy for them. Mm-hmm. And then I think that goes back to like the idea of pre-worry. Yep. Right? Like sometimes you you do have this vision, but like shutting down an idea at like its very first stages, because it doesn't match your vision, it's tough to see what that that idea someone has is gonna grow into. It might actually, through trial by fire, through discussions of the community, end up being something that's very close to your original vision Yeah. by the time it makes it all the way through. Yeah. And then like the final thing that I think is really cool that you touched on that like no one wants to hear is that communities can outgrow their leaders. Yes, 100%. <laughs> I mean, this has happened in Node three times, mm-hmm. right? And we're at a point where there is no single leader. There are individuals who are in leadership, but even that, we've seen the project outgrow those people. Mm-hmm. It's, I think that's kind of happening in Python now, too, or it has happened recently yeah it's really challenging like as an individual who is a leader to let that go because like you feel a lot of ownership and like participation and you really care about it or at least i do but it's a real challenge to say okay i'm done and have your community know that your community is going to be okay on the other side Mm -hmm. because you do feel like a sense of ownership and pride and like care for that community and it's really challenging mm-hmm. to say I'm done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been talking about that in terms of conferences, like conferences that are, are, are closing their doors and then you're like, well, but they did what they wanted and now there's a next, there's another generation coming up that has a slightly different way of looking at things that learned from them. Like scientific consensus only changes when like the old guard dies, right? Yep. Like that idea of pushing things far and then letting someone else has a, a fresher perspective than you move on from there, that can really do orders of magnitude better movement than just trying to stick with, with what your vision had been up until then. Yeah, and I mean, like, that's even, like, I know I keep bringing up Node, but that's what happened in Node. Mm-hmm. Ryan Dahl's original vision for Node was a fast HTTP server. We use it for <laughs> way more than that now. It's ridiculous how much we use Node for, and it came from a fast HTTP server. Mm-hmm. That's pretty amazing, and also indicative that his leadership maybe wasn't the best over the long term because yeah. the project has grown in a way that wasn't matching his idea of what it should be, mm-hmm. or his original idea, at least. Well, that also brings up, like, when things don't go the way you want them to, yeah. it's open source. Yeah. Like, let, let someone else take it in the new direction, and you keep moving in the direction that you want to go. Like, it's not, you know, even you're talking about the IO and Node Fork, right? Yep. Like, it's... That splintering in order for people to to take these different approaches, it did come back together and, and that work combined. But yeah. like, it wasn't bad that people wanted to take yeah. them in different directions. Yeah, and I, I I mean we can definitely see that it benefited both the developers who wanted to contribute and the ecosystem mm-hmm. as a whole. Like we would still not have async await or promises in Node. We wouldn't have a lot of the security features that have shipped. We wouldn't have worker threads. We wouldn't have basically any of the features that we're kind of enjoying at this point. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in your talk that, or anything that you would have liked to add to your talk that you couldn't fit into the time? I think empathy. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would have been a really good one to add. And I'll probably add it for Node Coffee U. 
having empathy for your users and your developers and your contributors is really, really important. And it's something that not a lot of people think about mm -hmm. as like an active thing. They think they have it and maybe they do. And often they might not, or they might not have it to the extent they need in open source. Yeah. And a lot of this comes down to empathy. Like a lot of it comes down to actually caring about the project and caring about the people who are working on the project and want to work on the project and could work on the project. Like, you know, Michael Rogers had empathy for me and worked with me and like was able to accommodate my bizarre schedule of coming in on a weekend and spending literally like 72 hours on node and then having to catch up for three weeks on that. And <laughs> while I'm gone, having empathy can help both your projects, your community and the people who are receiving your empathy and grow them into something that down the road is really impactful for both you and your entire ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Michael Rogers at multiple points. And it's because he had empathy. And I, I tried to do that as well, but it's, it's a challenging thing to like always have empathy because we're human and we dislike and like things and have opinions and it gets really challenging. So it can be hard to see past yourself sometimes. 100%. And yeah. I always struggle with that, yeah. but it's, part of being a human right. and it's also part of open source is having empathy. Yeah. And I think that that is like communication and empathy are just as important or probably more important than the actual code. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes yep. tough for developers to hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's why I, I kind of started off my talk with, you know, open source communities, everything except for the code. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. everything outside of code is what the community is. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good, good point to end on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks so much for yeah. talking to us. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad I could join you. All right, we're back. I'm Nick Nisi. I'm Sam Menza. I'm Peter Aiken. Welcome, Peter. You just spoke at JSConf US, and the title of your talk was Positive Deliberate Action. Can you uh, give us a brief summary of what you talked about? My talk was all about the experiences and learnings that I've had through organizing an event called Global Diversity CFPD, which is all about supporting people from underrepresented and marginalized groups and putting together their first tech conference proposal. Very cool. It's an awesome event. I actually helped run one of these in my hometown. Yep. So I was very excited to see you speaking at JSConf and getting the opportunity to, to chat with you about this. Looking uh, forward to it. Yeah. So definitely, definitely awesome. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into this? Let's see. I'll come through my experience of uh, running two conferences, mm -hmm. Scotland GS and Scotland CSS and the amount of outreach that was sort of happening there. In the talk, we kind of mentioned the, the sort of the backstory there and how that came about and that, you know, it started with having, when our call for proposals process for the conference was open, I would host a number of public video calls, that, you know, you would advertise that on Twitter and anybody that was feeling that they might be considering applying to speak could drop by on one of these calls and ask any questions of the organiser or previous speakers. Mm -hmm. And from that, it sort of grew into trying to be something that a bit more deliberate and positive and targeted to support people specifically from underrepresented marginalised groups. And I had this idea to have like a, an in-person workshop because then that's going to be you know, the communication and is going to be so much better. Than, much as video technology is great, it's, it's so much nicer just to be in person than ideally, you know, we'd be just encouraging people and supporting them in such a, a much more sort of one-to-one -one type basis mm -hmm. was the idea. And then that had a massive impact on the diversity of the applicants to those conferences and in particular the Scotland GS lineup that year in 2016. And then I kind of figured... 
after that conferences, those conferences had been gone, I kind of had this idea. I'm like, well, there was nothing JavaScript or CSS or Scotland specific in those workshops. Everything was all about public speaking and teasing out, working with people as to what they should be speaking about. So whatever their interests and things were that they were excited in or things that really annoyed them and try to just tap into the things that people had less sort of strong either positive or negative reaction towards. <laughs> so the idea that kind of came to mind after the conferences was, well, there was nothing that was JavaScript, CSS or Scotland specific in those workshops. So could we share this with tech communities everywhere and as many tech communities as possible to support as many people as possible? And the answer seemed to be yes. Because <laughs> we're sat here talking about it today. Yes. Yeah, clearly it looks like it's made an impact. Like you shared some of the statistics mm. earlier, and it looks like, I mean, with the Scotland CSS conference and Scotland JS conference, it seems like you had a significant increase in applicants from mm. minority groups. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, to summarize, you've run the event twice now in 2018 yes. and 2019, and coming up in 2020, so watch out for that. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that really got me interested in it when I saw it, I, and honestly, I don't remember how, I'm pretty sure Twitter, yeah, I saw or something. Yeah, but I've organized conferences in the past, mm-hmm. and I know the the benefit of having marginalized and underrepresented in tech at the conference. At the conference, there as attendees and as speakers, sure. and because we, we want to have as diverse of a lineup to give the widest perspective on everything that we can. Totally. And so that is a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. And I saw this, and I was really excited to to jump into it. Giving my my experience with it, like oh, why, why I thought it was so cool, but we jumped in and we had a, a pretty small turnout. Mm-hmm. I did it in 2018, had a pretty small turnout, and that's okay. Oh, I yeah. heard two. I think we had two CFPs actually submitted to oh. out of it. So on the day, wow. On the yeah, big win. <laughs> Go on. Um, yeah. Points. <laughs> but the, the thing that really got me excited about it is how can I help with this? Because mm-hmm. I see this from the conference organizer perspective, and I, you know selfishly want to help improve my conference and make this easier for me. But I I also know that there's other conferences that struggle Mm -hmm. with it. And there's people that want to speak and maybe don't know how. And really, I wanted to do this. But I'm not from one of these groups. So it did feel very weird. And your talk definitely made me feel uncomfortable in a good way, you know. But it, it did feel weird, you know, being a cis white male, hetero white male, I think is how you put it doing that and trying to run an event like this. So I, I definitely tried to get help where I, I could and I got more help. Sandy Barr really helped me put this this together. But it definitely was a very positive event, not just for me, but for the attendees, I think. I didn't hear anything bad. You didn't hear anything bad. <laughs> so it, it was definitely a positive thing. As women in tech, just seeing like uh, like a woman speakers and other women attendees. I mean, like I know for JS conflict, I really did notice the amount of women speakers and the amount of like just mm-hmm. like women here mm-hmm. has just been like absolutely amazing. And it's just like there's just something you you can't relate to it. Like as you can relate, you can try to understand where that person's coming from mm-hmm. when, it, when it comes to like being a woman in tech or being a marginalized group. But like you never actually can relate to them at that right. level if you're not like you're not living in that experience. Exactly. So I think like these type of initiatives are amazing for you know people like me and others mm-hmm. um, as well. So. Mm-hmm. One thing that I, I often see like in the CFPs that, mm-hmm. that I put out there for the conferences that, that I'm involved with is it, it's very hard. Like we don't have a very high percentage, but you do have impact stats, right? That, mm-hmm. that show that Global Diversity CFP Day 
has made an impact, specifically in the conferences sure. that you're involved with. Do you want to share those? Oh, we can try. Let's see if I can do this concisely. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if we look, talk about Scotland CSS in terms of the first year of that event was in 2016, mm-hmm. and we had about 50 applicants and maybe, I think it was, it was like in the, the high single digits in terms of applications that came from people from underrepresented marginalised groups. Mm-hmm. So that could be better. And that that was the year that we hosted the first sort of set of workshops specifically to these two conferences. But fast forward to while for Scotland CSS in twenty eighteen, after the first CFP day, we had about a hundred applicants and you would expect that that to be growing as you know the conference has been around a bit longer and more people hear about it, that sort of thing. But the number of applicants from people from underrepresented marginalised groups was like half which is incredible. And in terms of Scotland, yes, you know, that's been around a lot longer. And I usually would expect about uh, 40 more applicants each year, something like that. And there was like six different editions of that. And I don't have stats for like the first three events in terms of, you know, sort of percentage-wise of the applicants that propose talks. But I know that in Let's see if you look back at 2015, the percentage of folks that were from underrepresented marginalised groups was something like about 7% of about 160 proposals that arrived. We fast forward to 2016 when those first six workshops were done. The number of applicants had grew to near 200. We had about 35 of those were from people from underrepresented marginalised groups, which is a big difference. That was about seventeen percent. I think that's that's much higher than the sort of simplistic sort of gender. So if we take a simplistic look just at the the gender of the applicants, the number of people that had applied was up in around about thirty five. That's about seventeen percent of the overall applicants in twenty sixteen. And looking at the figures for the gender split in the workforce in Scotland. There's numbers there stretching as high as 12%. There's numbers that are lower. I've been inclined to believe the lower numbers. So 17% seem really, really good in, in that regard. Mm-hmm. But if you fast forward to 2018, when, when we held that first Global Diversity CFP day, the number of applicants jumped from like 200 to just about 400. The number of applicants overall doubled. Bearing that in mind, a third of those applicants, about 120 people, were from underrepresented marginalised groups, and I think that was the low bar number as well. Mm-hmm. So, so the way that we got that number was to ask people if they were from an underrepresented marginalised group and needed assistance to speak. And so there were people who didn't need financial assistance to speak, mm-hmm. which would increase that figure. And so, yeah, that went from like 17% in 2016 to 33 and a third in 2018, which, yeah, 120 odd folk, which is, wow. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very big impact. <laughs> and, you know, so then how can we go and take this and share it with the world? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Exciting. So how can, how can you get involved in this event? Let's see. Well, I suppose there's, there's two sides. You mm-hmm. could either be an attendee, which would be lovely to have you along, but wherever you're based, hopefully there's a workshop happening in your location because the whole concept is you know to be working with people together yeah. and the number of places where I actually just found out about another one today like small public speaking communities have started to sprout as, as a result of this and there's Bath and Bristol in the UK there's Detroit and there's a couple of others as well and it's just like wow but the other side of it is if you feel that this is 
something that's important to you and maybe you're involved in the community already, are you involved in meetups, are you involved in conferences, is, that, is this something that you want to help bring to your location if it's not there already? Mm-hmm. You could organise one of these. We try to do our best to make it as, as straightforward as possible and give you like a schedule and a whole load of educational material and workshop activities. Pretty much you need to find a venue and the types of things that we'll need are power, Wi-Fi, screen. Yeah. And you're off and running. Could we get catering? That would be a really nice to have. <laughs> what other kind of types of things are we after? You're going to need to build your own team in terms of organising it. Ideally, everybody involved in that team is going to have the same sort of sh- share our values and goal. And you would need to go through a code of conduct training because you'll be dealing with potentially any issues from the attendees raise. And we need you to be aware of how to best handle these types of situations. Yeah, and, and that's something that you mentioned is obviously you cannot guarantee safety. Yeah. But it is something that you want to strive for, for uh, everyone. And that's where a code of conduct really comes into play. But the code of conduct is just words, and it's it's really the action that matters. Well, that's the thing, though. Is it's a code of conduct is more about, it could be anywhere in a spectrum, you know, in terms of if you're, you're someone outside looking at an event has a code of conduct, we don't know if this is the event organisers are, like, at one end of the spectrum where they've thought and taken an optimistic perspective on it, all these other events have a code of conduct, we should get one. Thank you, copy, paste, on website, done. If we take a more pessimistic view, I would think maybe couch it in terms of people are maybe slightly more scared of what people on the internet might say about them. (laughs) But if they didn't have a code of conduct and so they maybe feel guilted or shamed into having one. But at the other end of the spectrum, you've got people that are going to put a whole lot of effort into training. You know, you can't, mitigate against every circumstance and train people against that but you can put a spectrum of different scenarios there to make people aware of what they could be dealing with what is their responsibility to deal with and what isn't you know where the line is with law enforcement you know all these kinds of things and just to try and prep them for that and also explain how they should be handling it so you've got these two sort of ends of the scale I kind of see one as being like 2% and the other one being 100%. And at the lower end, just below that, hide it. And, and folks could, if there's a code of conduct, the team could be anywhere on that scale and you have very little visibility into it. The interesting thing is we, where events don't have one, a code mm. of conduct, which is interesting. And I see people sort of reaching out and encouraging them to have a code of conduct. I would very much not do that. If you arrive and you look at the website... There is no code of conduct. They're not even at that 2%. Mm. That in itself is a signal. Yeah. Why do we want to get these people up to 1%, 2% and <laughs> onto the scale? The signal is there. Leave it for what it is. Yeah. And you know, people can choose whether they want to participate or not. But yeah, the signal is that these folk either aren't aware, which would be very surprising, or they don't agree with the concept. In which case, if they're not that bothered about it, are they that bothered about your safety? Well, and I much appreciate that we can't guarantee your safety, but it's all about building and maintaining trust is my kind of take on it. Mm-hmm. It's like if you've put that effort into planning and trying to educate everybody involved and how to deal with different scenarios, yes, we can always learn how to do these things better, but we're building and either maintaining trust as we go with this by trying to be transparent and you would report back in your conference, you know, and say... 
that such and such an incident has happened. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, you wouldn't be too specific. And here's the steps that were taken to remedy it, or we have taken to remedy it. And we've got the, the issues section at the bottom of the Code of Conduct page on the website. And again, it's not too specific, but you know, the people who have been present and who have been affected or reported the incident can look at that and see, right, this has been dealt with. Yeah. And you know, hopefully that builds trust and maintains that and yeah, discourages any issues from happening. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, just for an organization to take what you're, like a complaint like that seriously mm -hmm. is like a huge step, yeah. I think. And like to really, you know, mm -hmm. like deal with it, I think it's, it's big. It's, it makes people feel comfortable and yeah. safe for sure. Yeah, definitely. And then being transparent about it is, mm -hmm. is important yeah. Yeah, because otherwise they don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, very cool. This is such an important topic because we want safety and inclusion at these events like JSConf, Scotland JS, every event. Everywhere. It's important to have that diversity of speakers, attendees, and everyone to feel safe and welcome. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for, for putting this together and for really building a community around such an important topic. And to our listeners, if you don't have one of these in your area, please look into starting one because 2020 is the year to do that. And if you, if you want to find us on Twitter, the, the handle is GDCFPD. GDCFPD. Thank you, Peter, for talking to us. Thank, thank you very much for having me along. We've got a good thing going on. Ba, 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 ba.